welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Six cases this week, including one from the Wise Nine. We've also got a big one out of the Fourth Circuit and some quotes from the Ninth that I very much enjoy. I hope you do too. Also, if anyone wants some awesome immigration review stickers, email me your address. I won't spam your mailbox. Yet. Starting off, we have United States v. Palomar Santiago, published by the Supreme Court on May 24, 2021. This case arises in the illegal reentry criminal context, but it's also the Supreme Court speaking unanimously on an immigration issue. Justice Sotomayor authored the opinion. Mr. Palomar Santiago was a lawful permanent resident who was convicted of felony DUI and removed from the United States in 1998, based on a finding in immigration court that his conviction qualified as an aggravated felony, specifically an INA Section 101A43F, crime of violence. Mr. Palomar Santiago waived appeal, and he was removed to Mexico. Six years later, the Supreme Court held in Leo Calvi Ashcroft that such convictions do not qualify as aggravated felonies. Mr. Palomar Santiago re-entered the United States without authorization at some point after 1998, and he was caught in 2017. And when he was caught, he was charged criminally for unlawful re-entry after removal under 8 U.S.C. Section 1326. But here's the thing. A non-citizen can avoid a criminal conviction under that statute by collaterally attacking the underlying removal order, showing that there should never have been a removal order in the first place, that kind of thing. But to do so, there's understandably a high showing required. 8 U.S.C. Section 1326D requires that the non-citizen show that they, quote, 1. Exhausted any administrative remedies that may have been available to seek relief against the order, end quote. That, too, the removal proceedings improperly deprived the non-citizen of the opportunity for judicial review. And that, three, quote, 
the entry of the order was fundamentally unfair, end quote. Mr. Palomar Santiago didn't do a lot of those things, but he was criminally charged in the Ninth Circuit. And in the Ninth Circuit at the time, defendants, quote, are excused from proving the first two elements of Section 1326D if they were not convicted of an offense that made them removable, end quote. Put another way, to collaterally attack the removal order, the Ninth Circuit only required the third element, a showing of fundamental unfairness. Therefore, because his DUI offense was no longer an aggravated felony under Leocal, the district court agreed that a conviction based on the removal order would be fundamentally unfair and dismissed the criminal charge. And the Ninth Circuit affirmed. But the Supreme Court unanimously reversed, holding that the Ninth Circuit's, quote, interpretation is incompatible with the text of Section 1326D, end quote. According to the Supreme Court, to collaterally attack a removal order and therefore avoid criminal consequences for unlawful reentry, defendants must satisfy all three of Section 1326D's requirements. Here, that means that Mr. Palomar Santiago needed to appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals in 98 to satisfy the first exhaustion prong, and then file a petition for review with the Ninth Circuit to satisfy the second judicial review prong. So, Mr. Palomar Santiago can now be charged criminally, and it will be much easier to prosecute unlawful reentry, particularly in the Ninth Circuit. But what about motions to reopen? Although I'm not an expert in the realm of 1326 convictions, I don't believe this decision touches on the related issue of filing a motion to reopen with the immigration court for non-citizens who enter illegally after removal prior to their receiving a criminal conviction. That is, get the immigration court to reopen the final order of removal, which would result in the same thing as a collateral attack in criminal court, no underlying removal order. I believe this is what occurred, for example, in the whirlwind Lopez Chavez v. Garland case, discussed on episode 48 of the podcast. In that case, I believe the motion to reopen was based on ineffective assistance of counsel. And this decision provides strong substantive arguments for a motion to reopen here, because according to the unanimous Supreme Court, due to Leocal being published six years after his removal order, quote, Mr. Palomar Santiago's removal order thus never should have issued. End quote. And the Supreme Court is quoting its own case in Rivers v. Roadway Express Incorporated for this proposition, meaning that the Supreme Court interprets Leocal as constituting a, quote, authoritative statement of what the crime of violence statute meant before as well as after the decision of the case giving rise to that construction, end quote. Put another way, this Supreme Court case here is a good case to cite for the proposition that the Supreme Court's crimmigration decisions, or indeed even circuit crimmigration decisions when based on a textual reading of the INA at least, constitute fundamental changes of law that mandate reopening of since-closed removal cases. And that is United States v. Palomar Santiago. Next up, we have Quintero v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on May 26, 2021. This is a very long decision on asylum and a lot of things, including, quote, whether immigration judges have a legal duty to develop the record, end quote. Hint, they do. And the great quotes start right out of the gate. 
Mr. Quintero is from El Salvador, quote, a country long plagued by rampant gang violence and instability, end quote, where, quote, gangs exercise extraordinary levels of social control over the population, end quote. In El Salvador, quote, those who resist recruitment are generally seen as challenging the gang's authority and often suffer violence or even death as a result, end quote. All right, all right. Mr. Quintero joined MS-13 as a teenager, but when he tried to leave, gang members threatened to murder him and his family in person, over the phone, and over Facebook. The gang, of course, did a lot of bad things, including beheading his cousin, when his cousin similarly tried to leave the gang. Mr. Quintero left MS-13 anyway, and he eventually fled to the U.S., but at 23 years old, he was found homeless in Maryland. When discovered with his tattoos, DHS accused him of belonging to MS-13 and detained him. Despite having no criminal convictions, he remained in immigration detention up to and including the date of this decision, nearly four years. He applied for asylum and related relief, pro se, from detention, asserting his fear of MS-13 and his status as having deserted the gang. His asylum application was deemed time-barred because he hadn't filed within a year of coming to the U.S., and the immigration judge deemed him not credible, essentially tanking everything else. The BIA affirmed, although not on credibility, and the case was picked up by big law firm Morgan Lewis on petition for review. I can only assume pro bono. Because the BIA assumed Mr. Quintero credible, the Fourth Circuit did too, and therefore accepted his story of harm. And apparently this practice of assuming a petitioner credible where the BIA has done so even though the IJ made an adverse credibility finding, aligns with the practice in at least the 2nd, 3rd, 7th, and 9th circuits. On petition for review, the 4th Circuit viewed the case as one where Mr. Quintero was seeking withholding of removal based on his membership in the particular social group of, quote, former MS-13 members in El Salvador who left the gang without permission, end quote, and additionally family members of the beheaded cousin. But the main issue in this case is whether the IJ had a duty to develop the record and fully analyze the cognizability of those groups and Mr. Quintero's membership in them. Not only did the Fourth Circuit hold that an IJ indeed has that duty, but apparently that holding aligns to a degree with requirements in all other circuit courts of appeals, and even the BIA. The Fourth Circuit relied on the INA, international law, and the U.S. Constitution to reach its holding, but I think it's most helpful to practitioners to quote what an IJ's duties are in the Fourth Circuit at risk of reversal on appeal. For example, quoting BIA precedent in the Convention Against Torture context, the Fourth Circuit noted that when helping a non-citizen develop the record, IJs have a quote, affirmative duty, end quote, in all cases that come before them, and that a quote, cooperative approach in immigration court is particularly appropriate, end quote. The IJ's duties apply equally, even if the non-citizen has an attorney, but like Mr. Quintero, is, quote, especially crucial in cases involving unrepresented non-citizens who are deprived of adequate hearings when they are thrown into removal proceedings and left to sink or swim without adequate assistance from the immigration judge, end quote. For pro se's, quote, immigration judges have a duty to probe into, inquire of, and elicit all facts relevant to a respondent's claims, end quote. In addition to informing non-citizens of the elements needed for the relief sought and how they might satisfy their burden. 
Then, the IJ must help the non-citizen, quote, articulate a cognizable social group supported by those facts, end quote. This is not satisfied by, quote, superficial questioning, end quote. Nor can IJs, quote, correct their failure to probe more deeply by simply asking the non-citizen whether he has anything to add in support of his claim, end quote. And oh, by the way, an IJ has a duty to do all of this, even if they believe the non-citizen not credible, because as footnote 35 recognizes, an IJ cannot make an adverse credibility finding until the IJ adequately develops the factual record. Aha! All of this directly implicates matter of WYC and HOB from two years ago, which had required from the BIA that a respondent, quote, clearly indicate the exact delineation of any particular social groups to which she claims to belong, end quote, and mandates waiver of any particular social groups if a respondent fails to so specify. The Fourth Circuit flat out held that that decision, quote, does not apply to pro se asylum seekers, end quote. So matter of WYC, is overruled in part in the Fourth Circuit. And in footnote 28, the Fourth Circuit hinted that it has problems with that rule for represented non-citizens as well. Check it out for future cases. Anyway, the IJ failed to do any of that in this case, so the Fourth Circuit sent it all back. Great examples of questions that, it would appear, must be asked by IJs in the gang-based asylum cases on page 47 of the decision. And remember, in light of the Fourth Circuit's Amaya decision discussed on episode 40 of the podcast, quote, the proposed social group of former Salvadoran MS-13 members satisfies the particularity requirement, end quote. Finally, the Fourth Circuit also remanded for further CAT analysis, stating that government, quote, acquiescence does not require actual knowledge of torture, end quote. Good to know and that the IJ and BIA impermissibly failed to aggregate the risk of all harms to Mr. Quintero. Plus, based solely on the country condition evidence available in all cases, there is, quote, ample evidence showing that former MS-13 members in El Salvador commonly face the risk of being tortured or killed by MS-13, rival gang members, law enforcement, or vigilante death squads, end quote. Congratulations to Susan Baker Manning of Morgan Lewis and a whole bunch of lawyers for the win, plus an amicus from the more and more active group of, quote, retired immigration judges and former members of the Board of Immigration Appeals, end quote. I see you progressive retired IJs and BIA members. Two quick things. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the case is a must-read for any appeal in any circuit. Unless the IJ assigned to your case was a saint, and maybe even if she was, there's something in this decision that will likely support your appellate argument. The decision raises a lot of questions. For example, if an immigration judge has a duty to develop the factual record and articulate the particular social group for a pro se non-citizen, what happens when the immigration judge then determines that that particular social group articulated is not cognizable? In any event, decisions like this certainly don't jibe with the former administration's obsession with expedited adjudication or its 700-case completion requirement that was implemented regardless of the type of case that comes before an IJ. So if EOIR is to comply with the Fourth Circuit's edicts, I believe some change is probably needed to help non-citizens, immigration judges, and their staff all alike. 
Also, check out footnote 33, Attorney General Garland, for why, respectfully, you should vacate those 11th hour regulatory changes pushed through by your predecessor. And that is Quintero v. Garland. Moving to the Ninth Circuit, we have Dawson v. Garland, published on May 26, 2021. This is a decision about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Judge Mylan Smith dissented. Miss Dawson is from Jamaica, did not have authorization to be in the United States, and has a bit of a criminal record, including a serious drug crime. After some years in prison, she was ordered removed in immigration court due to her crimes and unlawful presence, but applied for deferral of removal from Jamaica due to the torture she feared in that country. She explained in court and provided evidence to prove that she had suffered terrible abuse at the hands of her former partner in Jamaica. They had actually met in the U.S., but he was physically removed to Jamaica, and she had traveled there to see him after his removal many years ago. When she did, she was escorted through the airport to his home by a Jamaican police officer and then beaten terribly by her partner, treated like a slave, and threatened with beheading. Police got involved sometimes, but he violated Jamaican court orders. Her partner shot at her, threatened her, beat her when he could, and was a constant harassment and threat to her existence in Jamaica. He had police friends who seemed to consent to all of this. And even if and when the police tried to help Miss Dawson, they would tell her that if she wanted to remain alive, she would need to, quote, go back to America, end quote, which she did. An immigration judge and the BIA denied cat deferral, largely, though not exclusively, because Miss Dawson, one, quote, obtained a protection order, and two, the abuser left the domestic household, end quote, although he continued to harm Miss Dawson afterwards. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the BIA. Unlike with past persecution, past torture, like that here, does not give rise to a presumption that a victim will be tortured in the future, although it's an important factor for a judge to consider. And here, the Ninth Circuit majority held that even though Ms. Dawson was targeted, harassed, and even hit and harmed after the protective order and after her abuser left their joint household, she didn't suffer harm that rose to the level of torture afterwards so she doesn't have a well-founded fear of torture if she returns to Jamaica. The Ninth Circuit also affirmed the holding that Miss Dawson could relocate in Jamaica. Again, another element that if this was an asylum or withholding case, DHS would have the burden based on a past persecution showing. But because it's a Convention Against Torture case, Miss Dawson retains that burden. And here again, relying primarily on the fact that she got a protective order, the majority held that its existence indicated that there was somewhere safe for Miss Dawson to go in Jamaica. Miss Dawson therefore lost her case. Here's a bit from dissent. So, and I could be wrong, but I don't believe that Judge Mylan Smith is often in the dissent in published cases denying asylum or cat protection. But he's not having any of it here. Quote, the majority omits the gory details of the abuse of Miss Dawson, notwithstanding the fact that our case law requires that we consider them in determining whether Miss Dawson is entitled to relief. Let me supply the details, end quote. I'm not going to do so here, but I of course direct you to the dissent. According to Judge Smith, and although it doesn't create a presumption, in the Ninth Circuit, quote, when an applicant who has previously been tortured seeks relief under the cat, 
The principal factor on which we rely for evaluating the likelihood of future torture is past torture, end quote. Here, Judge Smith believes that this case is materially similar to the horrendous case of Sashua Jaime Vibar, discussed on episode 9 of the podcast, and therefore that it similarly warrants mandatory cat protection. And that is Dawson v. Garland. Sticking with the ninth, we've got a doozy, Vasquez Romero v. Garland, published on May 28, 2021. This case is about returning lawful permanent residents and burdens. So normally, anytime a non-citizen enters the U.S., the non-citizen is said to be making an application for admission, which the U.S. government has broad discretion to deny and prevent the non-citizen from entering. But not LPRs. LPRs generally are allowed to come and go into the U.S. as they please, almost as easily as U.S. citizens, so long as the LPR doesn't fall within INA Section 101A13C. If they do, and only if they do, DHS can treat the returning LPR as an applicant for admission, which in most cases means that the returning LPR needs to go before an IJ and prove why they're entitled to enter the U.S. The framework is designed to protect the rights of LPRs following Supreme Court precedent from the mid-20th century, and so, DHS has the burden to establish, by clear and convincing evidence, that a returning LPR should, instead of being treated as an LPR, be treated as an applicant for admission. But when must DHS meet this burden? That's what this case is about. Mr. Vasquez Romero is a longtime LPR from Mexico, who left the U.S. for a couple of weeks in 2008. But he had a bit of a criminal history, and he actually had an outstanding warrant for arrest for petty theft in California at the time that he came back to the U.S. And California petty theft does match the definition of a CIMT. This is important, because while one CIMT generally doesn't make an LPR removable, Conviction of one CIMT, or even the mere commission of one CIMT, will allow DHS to treat an LPR as an applicant for admission if the LPR departs the U.S. and tries to come back in. Makes no sense to me, and I'm sure there's a convoluted history for that nice little legal gotcha, but the law's the law. So DHS decided to treat Mr. Vasquez Romero as an applicant for admission and paroled him into the U.S. for criminal prosecution of California petty theft. He was convicted and sentenced to a year in prison, and then he had removal proceedings initiated against him, where, instead of treating Mr. Vasquez Romero as an LPR who would not be removable for one CIMT conviction, DHS charged him as an arriving alien applicant for admission who could not enter the U.S., based on that one CIMT conviction. DHS argued that it could charge Mr. Vasquez Romero like this because it had paroled him in for prosecution of the crime based on suspicion that he had committed a CIMT all those months ago. Mr. Vasquez Romero moved to terminate its removal proceedings, arguing that DHS can't do that. They can't treat a returning LPR as an applicant for admission based simply on suspicion that he committed a CIMT. They must meet their burden to prove that he committed a CIMT by clear and convincing evidence right then and there. Remember here, all DHS had at the time that Mr. Vasquez Romero tried to enter the U.S. was a warrant for his arrest. And Mr. Vasquez Romero wasn't prosecuted until after he re-entered the country. 
the IJ and the BIA disagreed, relying on the BIA's decision in matter of Valenzuela Felix that, quote, when the government paroles a returning LPR into the U.S. for prosecution, it need not have all the evidence to sustain its burden of proving that the alien is an applicant for admission, but may ordinarily rely on the results of a subsequent prosecution to meet that burden in later proceedings, end quote. And here, the Ninth Circuit granted Chevron deference to matter of Valenzuela Felix, therefore ruling against Mr. Vasquez Romero. True, DHS has the burden to prove by clear and convincing evidence that a returning LPR falls within INA Section 101A13C and therefore can be treated as an applicant for admission. But DHS can parole a non-citizen in and then try to meet that burden before an IJ later. They need not prove it at the border and may rely on a post-parole conviction so long as the crime was committed before the LPR departed the United States. So Mr. Vasquez-Romero can be treated as an applicant for admission, and, unless he can show that he should be allowed to stay, such as is now being eligible for another green card or other relief, he will be removed. Just a bit more. If you want a refresher on how complicated CIMT case law is for California petty theft, check out Silva v. Barr on episode 11 of the podcast. To briefly summarize, a bunch of judges think California petty theft is not a CIMT, and that the Ninth Circuit got it wrong for many years by saying that it is. But because a panel of judges can't overturn prior precedent, no matter how wrong that precedent is, all panels must continue holding that California petty theft is a CIMT until the Ninth Circuit goes in bonk on the issue. Might this be the case to do so? Might Silva have been? And was an en banc motion filed in the case? I don't know. Stay tuned, I imagine it'll come up eventually. Honestly, to me, the ruling in this case is kind of expected. But I'm a bit excited by the decision, because in so ruling, the Ninth Circuit gave some ammunition to prevent a pretty rough collateral consequence of treating returning LPRs as applicants for admission, mandatory detention. While LPRs generally have a statutory and constitutional right to a bond hearing, the regulations completely divest IJs of holding any bond hearing for arriving alien applicants for admission. Therefore, if, as often happened under the prior regime, returning LPRs deemed applicants for admission are treated as arriving aliens, they can and were detained for months if not years while the removal proceedings played themselves out, often forcing the returning LPRs to simply give up their green card and leave the U.S. But here, the Ninth Circuit states that, quote, LPRs paroled into the United States retain their immigration status until entry of a final administrative order of removal, end quote. And remember, administrative orders of removal don't become final until the BIA rules. Indeed, in Valenzuela Felix itself, the BIA apparently corrected and addressed the Third Circuit's concerns, quote, that treating a returning LPR as an applicant for admission would strip the alien of LPR status, end quote. It doesn't, until an IJ and the BIA says it does, which is what makes this whole framework legal in the first place. Accordingly, as the Ninth Circuit states in this decision, quote, an LPR does not lose any rights at subsequent removal proceedings by being paroled into the United States rather than being treated as a returning LPR at the border, end quote. Emphasis added. To me, one of those rights has got to be the statutory and constitutional right to a bond hearing. 
DOJ can't simply take that away by regulation. File your motions for bond hearings for returning LPRs even if designated as arriving aliens. The law and these quotes are on your side. And that is Vasquez Romero v. Garland. Moving on, we have Takuri Takuri v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on May 24, 2021. This case is about non-LPR cancellation of removal. Mr. Takuri Takuri is from Ecuador and entered the U.S. without authorization. He's lived and worked in this country in construction since 2001. He's married, and he has two U.S. citizen children. However, he also has, quote, 18 charges for driving with a suspended license or driving under the influence, end quote, although it would appear no convictions. ICE initiated removal proceedings in 2018 when he had been in the U.S. for 17 years and decided to detain him for a year and a half during those proceedings. Mr. Takuri Takuri applied for the often-discussed form of relief, non-LPR cancellation of removal, under INA Section 240AB, a discretionary form of relief that he was eligible for because he had been in the U.S. continuously for over 10 years. Among other things, however, this form of relief, one of the only forms of relief available to someone like Mr. Takuri Takuri due to the 1997 changes to immigration law, requires a showing that removal will cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to the non-citizen's U.S. citizen or LPR spouse, parents, or children under 21 years old. It's a very high standard that, under case law over two decades old at this point, is not satisfied by the, quote, usual hardships, end quote, expected of separating parents from their children or spouses from their spouses. Mr. Takuri Takuri, through counsel, presented testimony and reports showing that his kids were suffering emotionally, psychologically, and in school without him. One of the children, the five-year-old daughter, was crying nearly every night that he remained in detention for the nearly two years, asking where her daddy was. The 12-year-old son was suffering from asthma, which was getting worse without his father to assist him, and would make the son's relocation to Ecuador impossible. Finally, the family was already low income and was having to borrow money from Mr. Takuri Takuri, a circumstance which would get much worse if he was removed due to the low wages in Ecuador and the fact that he'd lose his small construction business in the U.S. An IJ held that this satisfied the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard and that Mr. Takuri Takuri otherwise qualified for non-LPR cancellation of removal. But DHS decided to appeal, and the BIA reversed. In essence, the BIA said that Mr. Takuri Takuri's removal to Ecuador wouldn't be so bad for his U.S. citizen children. On remand, the IJ granted Mr. Takuri Takuri post-conclusion voluntary departure under INA 240BB, therefore avoiding a removal order, and it all made its way up to the First Circuit. The First Circuit upheld the BIA. As an initial matter, it reviewed the issues notwithstanding the fairly difficult jurisdictional bars to reviewing non-LPR cancellation of removal. And it did so because Mr. Takuri Takuri persuasively argued that, quote, the BIA both failed to identify and apply each of the factors identified in its governing precedent and expected him to meet a higher bar for the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard than that set forth in other cases. For the First Circuit panel here, that's a sufficiently legal question that the court will review. 
Kind of. It actually wasn't so sure, so the court just went to the merits of the issue and held that Mr. Takuri Takuri failed to meet the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard. In so doing, it first provided its understanding of that standard. It generally quoted from the usual BIA suspects and also affirmed, for example, that the term is not, quote, fixed and inflexible, end quote, and that a, quote, applicant need not show that such hardship would be unconscionable, end quote. Having laid out the standard, however, the First Circuit held that the BIA reasonably applied it in this case and sufficiently explained its holding. Mr. Takuri Takuri, therefore, will have to leave his wife and children after 20 years in the U.S. In a quote that appears to advocate for immigration reform, the First Circuit panel, comprised of three of the most powerful judges in the world, concludes by stating that, quote, This case is yet another occasion when we regret that we can do nothing for Petitioner and his children. Mr. Takuri Takuri's removal from this country will undoubtedly be devastating for his wife and children. The law, however, does not lean in Mr. Takuri Takuri's favor, both in the daunting standard it sets and in the wide discretion it grants to the BIA to deny relief even when others would not do so. End quote. Two more things. So, because the First Circuit bypassed the jurisdiction issue, something courts almost never do, It would be a fair guess that this is one of the only published decisions in the First Circuit explaining the First Circuit's view of the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard. So review it and keep it in mind, First Circuit practitioners. And just a friendly reminder that while INA Section 240BB Voluntary Departure avoids a removal order and its attendant 10-year bar from Mr. Takuri Takuri re-entering the country, he will still have a 10-year bar from re-entering due to his over one year of unlawful presence in the U.S. One of the other gotchas implemented by Congress in 1997. So be careful when advising clients. And that is to Curry to Curry v. Garland. Finally, we have Rojas v. Garland published by the Eighth Circuit on May 27, 2021. Finishing up with some crimmigration, drug trafficking to be specific. Mr. Rojas entered the United States without authorization in 1997, and he was arrested in Iowa for possession with the intent to distribute methamphetamine in 2018. The federal charges were dismissed, but based simply on the arrest, DHS initiated removal proceedings because, after all, Mr. Rojas is removable for having entered the United States without authorization all those years ago. He applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal and adjustment of status. But DHS alleged that he was ineligible for both forms of relief because his arrest made it such there was reason to believe that he is or has been an illicit trafficker in a controlled substance, as described at INA Section 212A2C. That provision doesn't require a conviction, or technically, even an arrest. Quite the provision. At his hearing, Mr. Rojas therefore took a big risk and testified to the facts of that dismissed criminal charge. Essentially, he blamed it all on his nephew who was driving, and he claims that he thought that they were going to a strip club, not, as occurred, attempting to sell 10 gallons of meth that turned out to be in the trunk of the car. 
the Eighth Circuit noted that the reason-to-believe standard used under the INA equates to a probable cause standard. Relying on matter of AH, discussed, as it turns out, in detail three weeks ago in Mirza v. Garland. And probable cause requires that there be, quote, a fair probability or substantial chance that the person has committed an offense, end quote. Here, even though the criminal charge was dismissed, the Eighth Circuit held that that standard was met. Mr. Rojas was found in the car with thousands of grams of meth and admitted that he knew, by at least mid-trip, what his nephew was up to. Having so held, the Eighth Circuit deemed itself barred from reviewing anything else about the case under INA Section 242A2C. That provision, aka the criminal alien bar, strips courts of jurisdiction over most issues where the non-citizen has committed certain criminal offenses, including drug trafficking. Having sustained the reason-to-believe charge, the Eighth Circuit found that this jurisdiction-stripping provision was applicable, and so dismissed the rest of the case. Just one more thing. Heads up, though. Whether a reason-to-believe drug trafficking finding can actually trigger INA Section 242A2C is a bit of an open question, because the jurisdiction-stripping provision only applies based on a finding that the non-citizen committed a covered offense. Apparently, the Fifth and the Ninth Circuit have held that a reason-to-believe finding will nevertheless trigger the jurisdictional bar. But here, the Eighth Circuit's only assuming that to be the case without deciding. So heads up, bit of an open issue outside of the Fifth and the Ninth Circuits. And that is Rojas v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.